I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity, auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to the API Intersection podcast. I'm Jason Harmon, CTO at Stoplight.io. I'm here today with our co-host, Adam Duvander, and our guest, Isabel Moni. So Adam, tell us a little quick bit about yourself as today's co-host. Yeah, I work with every developer, and we engage developers around APIs. And so I'm excited to hear from Isabel today about uh, her experience. Awesome. And Isabel comes to us, I've got a little blip here on her, that uh, she's the field CTO and co-founder of 42 Crunch. They're focused kind of around API security. She has a pretty long history in kind of all before the cool API stuff when we used to call it uh, SOA and all that. And certainly comes from kind of the big enterprise side of the world. But uh, I don't know, tell me your version of that story. Yeah, so it started when, uh, you know, API management used to be called XML gateways back in... 2004, 2005 is really when I started to work with what were going to become APIs and integration and and security. That was at the time where I was at IBM and IBM acquired data power here. And that's where it all started, I think. And yeah, and then at 42Crunch, we are, you know, continuing that uh, long tradition of securing APIs and and the word is becoming uh, more complicated, I think, in that space a bit. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that. Yeah, for sure. I guess for those uh, listeners who have video and can see the gray in my beard, I also experienced some of the SOA XML stuff, so I can can feel the pain. But it's interesting. I, I think the way you say that, you know, things are getting more complicated. It's like this was all supposed to be easier, right? So I'm curious out of the gate to get your perspective on from that kind of SOA world into kind of REST APIs or, you know, the, the magic that's going to solve it all. And now there's all these other APIs and, you know, now there's cloud and there's you know, everything is something is code. And what's that kind of journey and that change in the, the sort of service architecture world look like for you? I think what really this one word that qualifies what we're doing now for me, it's scale. What has changed is the scale at which we are writing APIs, deploying APIs, using APIs, the usual customers that I was working with in, in the years 2000, maybe they maybe had like five, six things that they were integrating with. That was like the extent of what they were doing in terms of integrating with the external world. And now it's like, I don't have, I don't think any single customer that doesn't have less than 100 APIs. That's kind of the low level of it up to thousands, right? So at that scale, everything becomes a problem and security is one of them, but, but, testing and, and mocking up and governance and you know so the technology in terms of rest and json probably is seen as more as simple than than the wisdom and of this world and the soaps that we have lived through in terms of the data flowing through and, and how you describe them and all the tools we have now to also create those apis that made things much simpler right but in terms of scaling and keeping quality, security, scalability, you know, at, at scale, I think it, it became more complex than it was. Yeah, for sure. How are you seeing companies organize around that if they're having all this scale and all these different tools that are used externally and internally? How do they make sense of it? 
So there's different levels of maturity that we see. You know, there's some people that are really left behind in terms of still being very manual oriented. And I think that the, the key word there is automation, right? It becomes very complicated to do anything at that scale of hundreds. Let's not even talk about thousands. Let's say even 50 or 100 APIs. If you have, let's say 100 APIs and every day you have at least one change on one of those APIs, then you have to test it. You have to make sure everything still works, how you're going to impact the people consuming this. The documentation has to be updated, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to do this every single day for every single API. So for me, there's only one salvation, which is to automate as much as possible. And, and some people are very far on, on that journey. Some people are still beginning on that journey. But definitely everybody agrees that there is no salvation outside of, of automation at every single level, at testing level, at development level, at deployment level, at security level, which is what we're trying to help with at, at, at 42 Crunch. So, yeah, automation is really the key thing to manage at that scale, I would say. So, so you mentioned like kind of you know the XML whistle you know old world and a lot of people kind of point to me you know certainly having been involved in the beginning of Open API that like you know isn't this just the new whistle for kind of REST APIs? But I'm curious you know I, I know that you're on the tiebreaker group as I was as well in the early days as part of the technical technical oversight board. What role does Open API play for you in kind of all this stuff? And you know do you think that that's kind of leading where we're going with all this now? Well, the fundamental role that OpenAPI has played and is playing today is having a single language to describe what the APIs are doing. And I can use that language everywhere, pretty much every single API management tool in this world is, is, is supporting this. Every framework of development is supporting it. You have dozens of SDKs to generate code from OpenAPI, from testing. And what was born for maybe more documentation is now evolving with this API-first approach into something that can be used for testing, for mock-up. So I see more and more customers actually doing that, that they're starting with the OpenAPI definition. And then from there, they can create a mock-up. So while they're developing the back-end, then the, the front-end developers can, can actually work, you know, and don't have to wait until the API is actually ready. You can test drive from API. You can do security from API, from open API. The entire life cycle basically can be driven from open API today. So there's a huge achievement there, which is, I think, even beyond what, what we had done with WSDL at some point in terms of how ingrained this is into pretty much every API lifecycle today, right? So it, it plays a fundamental role for me. And, and, and there's a lot of there's some other ways of developing APIs, like GraphQL is one of them, or, or now async API is something that's, that's emerging as well. And, and all of these you know, are just going in, in the right direction, which is to harmonize and make sure we all speak the same language should I be doing open banking and that's specified in open API or open healthcare or open insurance or I think it's it's fantastic to have something which is so pervasive and, and everybody understands and can leverage across every industry in the world as the way to describe APIs today, right? So one little 
tagline or term you used, and there's API first, which I know for me in the last couple of years has felt like a source of confusion, but in the enterprise world has caught on as this kind of everyone from the Harvard kind of MBA educated side of the world to the MIT version of platform tech folks have all latched onto. But I feel like sometimes it means different things. I think what you were describing is kind of the design first aspect of how open API has shifted. Do you see that there are other aspects of kind of being API first? Yeah, it's really contract first, design first. I think that's what I was talking about indeed, which is really about, you know, pretty much starting from the contract and, and deriving everything from, from that contract indeed. That's the main aspect that I see at Met customers being used. I don't know if you guys have, have other experiences as well. It's been interesting for me to see that some kind of more business oriented folks hear API first and they go, well, hey, we should think about how we externalize these things from the start. I imagine being in the security side of the world, that probably plays a bigger role in externalized APIs for you versus the kind of more internal, maybe kind of, you know, 20 years microservices approach, right? Definitely. So to this whole, you know, maybe API as a product type, uh, also uh, discussions we can have that I also see a lot, you know, that there's really two, two aspects of, for me of API development and uh, today in, in large enterprises that I'm working with, right? There's indeed the internal consumption and refactoring the way we're creating applications today in this modular fashion, which is like an evolution of what we have lived with, with SOA, right? But with more evolution from a technical point of view, because in the meantime, we got cloud and we got containers and we got Kubernetes and all of this has allowed us to to really create different applications, even if the, for me, the concepts are very similar, right? In the end, it's all about creating reusable components, but then you have to get those components to work together, to integrate, to scale, et cetera. And, and all those new technologies around cloud that allows us to actually do this, right? So th th there is that aspect of, of like writing applications today and how do we write our applications today? And then there is, okay, now I have those APIs. I'm working with, with this customer right now. They've actually gone along that journey of saying, okay, let's first re-architect our internal application. Then we'll see how this API program works internally for ourselves. Now we have been successful in proving this is working fine. Now, okay, next step is start to opening some of those APIs to our partners and see how that works, right? So then they start having their little private API market for doing that, and that worked really well for them. So the next stage after that is, okay, now, now maybe some of those APIs we can build a business on. And this is where the business aspect comes into the picture, where business starts saying, oh, so, you know, those APIs, like they're in the, without giving too much away, but they're in, in the insurance sector. And, and business there says, okay, so maybe we, you know, the same way we have fintechs that want to take advantage of open banking APIs, we're starting to see insurtechs that want to go and consume multiple insurance APIs so they can, for example, tell you automatically, well, the best insurance for your car is this one because we went to across 10 different insurance providers and we found this one works better for you for your circumstances, right? So they went along that journey, which I think is pretty common. There are some exceptions, you know, you take the Ebays of the world and they're only an API and they make billions out of their APIs, but that's that's like a fantastic and amazing story, but that's 
it's an exception more, maybe more more than more than the the rule right but definitely i i see that evolution very much of of we we got successfully in something internal and and then we just go and and grow that and actually it's an interesting aspect of of security that comes into play there because as you know along that journey the requirements for security you had when this was just for you become very different when now certainly you're exposing this to the outside world for everyone to consume and people tend to forget about oh oh why we we really not should not expose those APIs the same way that we were doing internally for our internal consumption but now to you know everyone in the world be able to consume them so there's some interesting aspects to take care of there in terms of scalability etc but it's definitely uh, something i see a lot across a lot of different industries i'm curious whether when you talk about the scale today whether how much of that is those different slices of api authentication and how much how much of it is just internal software processes i mean would that complexity be there if someone was entirely focused internally or does the ability to open up particular apis to partners or externally in other ways bring that complexity the complexity of the scaling you can have it perfectly just by exposing things internally, right? If you're, if you're, you know, I have another customer, they, they're a huge automotive company, let's say they have thousands of APIs, right? Thousands of developers. This is all internal apps, right? And, and, and connected car and this kind of things, right? This is not open to outside people, but the complexity and scale is still there, right? And, and being able to automate the entire life cycle of the API, you know, ideally what you want, right, is you are the developer, you write your code, right? You push that code in some code repository, whatever it is, and then some magic happens, right? Right now we have a magic, whoever is doing DevOps of like pushing my code, it's gonna be maybe analyzed automatically, some linting will happen, some quality validation may happen from, from a security standpoint or from a complexity standpoint, for example, and then it will take that code, will compile it, package it, whatever the language is, and, and then it will be deployed automatically, right? And then whenever I click on commit, all of this is happening automatically. That's the scale we're talking about, right? And then in there, you want to enrich, basically what I see people doing now is enriching that pipeline. So they went to a point where they had that deployment working automatically. Now they need, okay, what's going on with security now? So, right, because coming back to security, one of the big points of scaling that we see at customers is two things. A, you have a lot of developers and very few AppSec people. And most of the companies I'm working with, you have one AppSec people for 100 developers. So you have developers creating code like crazy, right? <laughs> you have all those great tools and they can click on a button and it gets deployed. But at the other end of that pipeline, there's a security person that needs to say, wait a minute, <laughs> hang on, just slow down because I need to validate that this API is doing is not doing things it shouldn't do. It's been tested properly from a, maybe we want to do pen testing on it or whatever it is. And this is where we start realizing now that, okay, in that pipeline, we really have to put security and we have to put security testing as early as possible in that pipeline, right? So that, that same agility that we have obtained in testing, like functional testing before we deploy, 
or doing a code analysis at the complexity level, et cetera. Well, we want to do the same thing, but from a security standpoint. So it becomes ingrained again in the API lifecycle. I click on the button and all this great security testing is done automatically, the same way the rest of testing is done, in a way that it does not impact productivity, which is very important for developers, right? And at the end of that pipeline, you know, at least I have covered a big part of the testing so that I know that the quality of that code and, and the security level of that code is actually good and satisfactory to then be delivered to the security people that will do more, maybe manual or more advanced testing on, on the APIs before they get into production, right? So that's really the, I think there's a big movement, like we had DevOps, now we, we're sec DevOps, depending on how you, you want to put the, the order of the letters, but, but the idea is the same, right? The idea is to ingrain security in, in, in that life cycle. We, need to, we really need to get there, to get to that scale. And, and what changes if this is exposed externally, I think, is that security testing and, and validating we really have put in place all the security measures becomes even more critical, right? Like that data, you know, the key thing about APIs, it's all about data. What you're doing with APIs, we're exposing data, okay? So it's not about defending the perimeter as we used to do with security anymore. It's about defending the data. How do we defend that data? from not going to people we don't want it to go to or we're overexposing information we didn't want to, depending on who is consuming this. So all of that control and governance becomes extremely critical as we go and open more and more our APIs to, to more consumers and, and, and maybe uncontrolled consumer, I would say, right? So anyone can come and consume. It's awesome. There's like so much to unpack. It's like this could be a long one. I guess the first <laughs> bit out of there is like for me, the security topic around APIs. I feel like the long pole in the tent always ends up being identity, which really isn't a security concept. But I guess I'm curious to unpack from what you're saying on like protecting the data is really an access control aspect of kind of identity controls. So like when we take, as you said, you know, like edge controls and you know, kind of network stuff and all the security building blocks. We kind of say, let's take that as the status quo. What is it that's unique to APIs? Is it this identity piece or is there kind of more that you're looking at? So there's three aspects that are critical for APIs. So I don't know if you, if you know that, but there's actually now since late 2019, there's an OWASP top 10 for APIs. And before that, when we created for it to crunch, but four years ago now, we, we used to say and tell people, APIs are different, you know, and, and the OWASP top 10, as it is today, is all about traditional web applications, and it's not adapted to the way APIs are working. That message really came through when finally that OWASP top 10 came, and, and that was like the recognition that, yes, APIs are different. And really, if you look at this top 10, you'll find three main groups, right? You'll find everything related to data which are new, those are not from the OWASP top 10, which is about making sure you control which data you accept in and what data you return out, right? So there's a, an assignment issue and there's a data leakage issue, right? Then there is authorization, which is basically ensuring that you do control who has access to what, and this at two levels. 
A, at the operation level, so that we know more, like Adam can access get slash resources, but Jason can access post slash resources. So that's kind of control. People understand that. But the number one problem in that OWASP top 10 is about data access. So access at the resource at the resource level. So just to give you an example, and there's tons of example of that in 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 apisecurity.io, which is a site we curate where we pass all that information about problems, is so if, if I take a, uh, an example, it would be Adam gets an access token to access an API, right? And he has access to his account, and his account is 123, right? That's the account number. Now, if he knows your account, Jason, which happens to be 135, right? then he can get access to that. Although he should really not be able to access that because obviously account 135 is, is not his. It's, it's yours, right, Jason? So, so this is called BOLA in the OWASP top 10, broken level object access. Or some people you know, listening to this may know this as IDOR, which, which is kind of another name, like indirect object reference. But it's a big and a major authorization issue in APIs. And why? Because now, because through an API, you're exposing that link with that URL where you're passing a UID and you make it very easy for people to enumerate on that ID, right? So, of course, to access this, I will have to have authenticated. So I will have to get some kind of token and authorization to contact the API and talk to it. But the key problem is once I have that, then I can go and you know, and enumerate, and some millions of records have been extracted like this through APIs through that problem. So that's a big one to solve, and it's not an easy one to solve at all, because at the root of it, it's about implementing proper authentication at the data level, at the, really at the resource level, right? And then the third group is about authentication, right? Just making sure that you have authentication in place, that you cannot consume an API, if you don't have some kind of token. And here I'm just open a parenthesis around this because one of the big problems around API security is, is knowledge and skills, frankly. And we have complex standards to work with, you know, the OpenID Connects and the OAuth of this world. And those are not well understood. It's, those are not easy things to understand. There's a lot of Little details, like if you do it this way, if you don't do it that way, then it might give you some problems and it needs clarification and it needs a lot of work to become easier to, to, to use. So it is what you have to use. That's a recommended way. And they're working on making this as simple as possible. But it is a problem because in itself, people get confused about how to use it. And when it's complicated, what do people do? They go to the least resistance path, right? And today, the least resistance path is say, I'll put an API key, right? So that will be easier for everyone. It's easier for me as a provider of the API. It's easier for the person consuming it. It's just a string I have to pass on the header, and that's it, right? But in many cases, that's really not enough, right? So, so we really have to educate more on auth, make it easier to consume, make it easier so people don't go to that easiest path when they should not really go through that path, right? So those are the top issues I would say that we see. Yeah. And some of those you've mentioned sound to me like things that could be caught very early on, which I think is to your point. And so 
what role does API design and I guess also governance play in securing APIs as early as possible? It's huge, Adam. It's huge because as, as you always say, you cannot secure what you don't know about, right? So the, the, the first thing we tell to every customer is you need to know what are your APIs? You know, what do they do? What is the data they have access to? Who is going to consume them? How they are going to be consumed? Like, is it read-only? Is it over something you have to modify, some data? Do you have a catalog of these? You know, where they are, et cetera. So the governance aspect and knowing and, and managing those APIs is very critical you know, for many different reasons. How do you retire APIs? So there's, there's a bunch of attacks, uh, sorry, breaches more than attacks that have happened because we've forgotten that version 1.0 is still living out there somewhere and we're on version 3 and then somebody finds that endpoint and start talking to it, right? And it's not what even remembered that it's still up and running or something like, oh, we're going to open, <laughs> this is actually a real one, it's a good one from, uh, I think it was happened in India, where they opened just for the time of testing, they open an endpoint without security, with no token and nothing, because it was easier to do a performance test, not to have security in the middle. And then, of course, somebody forgot to remove that until someone found it and it had zero, like no security at all, but pointing to production data. That's how problems happen. So yes, <laughs> governance is, is a huge part of us and governance at scale is not easy, right? And, and if there's one thing that I think we, we really need to do is there's a big divide, let's, let's recognize it today, between the security teams and the development teams, right? There's usually kind of a wall there in the middle because security is like all those dev guys, you know, they're writing code that has problems and... and I'm in point too late and there's all kind of finger pointing problems and developments like, oh, the security guys, they're going to block me. So that's going to, you know, impede me from delivering things on time and, and I'm going to be late on, on my application delivery. So they don't like it either. So we're not going to do any good security if we don't get those two groups to really collaborate as opposed to look at this other saying everybody is the other is the problem. And we have to give them as one of the things really we wanted to do when we created 42Crunch is, is how do we give tools so that those two groups can really work better together. That's what they have to do. We have to give tools to the development people or security tools, but easy for developers to consume. And that will make the development life easier, but also give what security needs, which is better secured APIs, which is what their job is, right? So it's very important in, in companies that, that we get those two groups to work together better, right? And, and, and do that shift left and, and make sure that we can really have basically APIs where we know as early as possible what is the security posture, how is this going to be secure? So we don't discover this in pre-production like three days before we're going to release it, right? That's the thing that doesn't work at all. Isabel, for the listener's benefit, what do you mean by shift left? Ah, yes. <laughs> what I mean by shift left is like uh, starting worrying about security as early as possible in the life cycle. It's like if possible from design time, right? 
so, so that we, we really start saying at design time, evaluate, okay, how is this secured? And, and make really, again, the security part of what we test. That's also something we see at our customers. Everybody tests like the happy path, right? This is my API. That's how it does. You know, I'm going to take some, some tools and run some automated testing and, you know, a little bit of non-working things to make sure things are okay. And that's it, right? But as part of that, we need to do security testing as well. And what does that mean? That means what happens if I'm sending a bad token, right? What happens if I'm not sending security tokens, et cetera? So we have to test with security on, right? What happens if I'm sending you an integer instead of a string in a parameter? How is your API going to react to that? Is it going to go belly up <laughs> and, and, and send you back an exception? Or is it going to handle it nicely and just and tell you, sorry, code 400, bad request? If you're not going to know any of that until you actually, the same way you have automated testing for functional testing, have automated testing for security testing, right? So I call that the hacky path, right? So instead of testing on top of testing the happy path, go and test the hacky path, which is what hackers do, right? Hackers don't follow your open API and say, okay, I'm going to call it exactly the way you told me. Of course not, right? They're going to bombard and do discovery uh, using dictionaries and they're going to try bad path and bad data and then learn from the responses that you give, right? And then try the next thing. So it's very important that your API is resistant to all this like misbehavior, I would say. And we have to test this as early as possible. Over the course of my career, probably a fairly mediocre developer, I can say that even not being malicious, that's actually pretty much describes how I operate. It's like, you know, I always tell people developer experience step one is expect errors, right? You're probably going to use it wrong the first time unless you really made everything super easy. So planning for the worst upfront is good. For instance, like I've actually seen examples of someone tries the API the first time with that sequential identifier and plugs in a random number and gets someone else's data. What kind of experience is that beyond the breach implications? This is Bola. This is Idor I was talking about. That's exactly the one. That's exactly the one. Yeah. Yeah, it's music to my ears because I actually did a talk for the better part of a year or two in various forms of API design anti-patterns. The basics are so simple that I think a lot of people would think about big, complex identity, whatever, but it's like, don't use sequential identifiers. You know? and, and I point to like recently, this kind of parlor exfiltration was fascinating. I was like going down the list of all of the things that they've done wrong. I'm like, this is all the basics we all talk about. Right? is like there's no kind of access control, sequential identifiers. I mean, just laid out just a buffet of how to go get every piece of data out of that platform. Not to get political here at all. I just, you know, from a security standpoint, it's fascinating. If you if you look at it, it's really, you know, for, for um, anyone listening, if, you, if you're if you loaded, I guess you're subscribed to the newsletter or to the API Secure.io newsletter. But when you look at those attacks that we are documenting there, you will see out of those OWASP top 10, usually you never have a single problem. You have like two or three from that list and some combinations are really lethal. <laughs> you know, like uh, if you have 
IDOR, like you have a problem of IDs and you don't have any rate limiting, that is really a bad combination, right? You don't have authentication and you don't have rate limiting. That's another very, very bad combination. Or you have no rate limiting on like logging, password reset, this kind of operations. That's also a very bad thing if you have some bad detection there. And then you associate that, you will see that in most of the very, very large breaches, the other big problem is, is logging and monitoring in general, right? Because as I always tell customers, you know, that this parlor thing or others, you hear that whatever, 10 million, 50 million, <laughs> dozens of millions of records have been exfiltrated. It's like, certainly this needs to pop up in red in some monitoring window somewhere with this big peak, you know, saying, what is going on here? And if you don't have that monitoring, you know, problems can happen and will happen, right? But the speed at which you can detect those is also very critical, right? Because again, through the APIs, you, you can have direct access to all that information. So if somebody finds a flaw, they're going to try to exfiltrate the maximum of data and the minimum of amount of time. That needs to be visible somewhere. Otherwise, you really have a big issue there. You may take weeks and months before you realize something has actually happened. I've seen examples, too, of where like the logs themselves, it just gets a little weird. We're going to get a little like techie here. Sorry, but <laughs> it's like your path design in your API ends up in the logs. And so, it, for instance, if you're passing identity-related identifiers in the path, you end up with a log that is basically a pointer to everyone's identity. So if the log's compromised, it doesn't matter how good the kind of edge of uh, security is, right? So yeah, I, I'm always encouraging folks to like be mindful of the security of the data that's in your path because it will be filling your log shortly. And that's the big thing between the difference and putting something in a query and putting something in a header. A lot of people don't understand that what's the difference? That works both ways. Yeah, yeah but one is going to end up in all your logs and the other one doesn't, right? That's the big difference between the two. So yeah, if, if that log gets compromised, then off you go. Again, that's a security decision that is happening at the very earliest design stage. Indeed. And see what I'm, why I'm saying that security needs to be ingrained in all those decisions, because the decisions you're taking in terms of API guidelines and how you're going to write your APIs, right? And then every developer coming in your company is going to implement according to those guidelines. If security is not there, then some people will take decision A, other will take decision B, and you will only discover they've taken the wrong decision very late in the life cycle, where it becomes very expensive to actually fix those issues because there are design issues. They're not like a line of code you have to change. No, you have to go and go back to the design of the API and change it, right? So the earlier we look at these things and we detect them, the better, right? So, so that you can put the finger on, mm, maybe that's not what you want to do, right? But we're still very early in the life cycle, so it's gonna be easy to fix, right? It's, it's very, very critical. And, and the other thing I would say that I, I find something that, that customers don't really realize many times is what is a public API? So most of the time when we ask somebody, what is a public API? They will tell you, well, that's an API that's open to a third-party consumer. And it's like, no. <laughs> Anything which is on the internet is public, 
right? And, and, and a lot of people don't realize, like, if I'm exposing APIs from myself because I want to create a mobile app to consume it, right? That's not the public API because I haven't told anyone, right? <laughs> I don't have an API market. I don't have a developer portal. Well, maybe I do, but it's an internal one. Well, that's so easy, you know? So I encourage, you know, if you want to test this, I'm doing this all the time for my demos, right? When I deploy a new of our firewall to do a demo for a customer the day after, 100% guaranteed the day I do the demo, my endpoint for my firewall is full of logs of bots that have been hammering that endpoint for 24 hours. You know, sometimes it takes even 10 minutes for that endpoint to be advertised. Of course, I haven't advertised it anywhere, but all those bots, they are scanning those cloud IP address ranges and they will find that, oh, there's a new one which is active and they will start automatically running all those exploits and see if one is going to, going to work, right? And if it does, then pops up probably an alert somewhere and somebody is going to go and investigate. So that's what public really means, right? <laughs> it's, it's really about the fact that there is an IP address on, it doesn't even need to be in a DNS. There's an IP address somewhere on the internet and that's enough, right? So you, you have to be very careful about that, that concept, I think. So I guess as we kind of, you know, think back to where we started with this discussion is automation. And so you, you kind of talked throughout this, you know, I think we've established here that looking at kind of designing first, thinking about all the various aspects of how you're going to test this, secure it, you know, do all these things up front. And you talk about kind of what are the, the tools and how all this plugs in. I know in my experience over the last, you know, five, 10 years of seeing this happen, that it, there's been a lot of in-house builds to try to cobble these things together and it takes a long time and it's rough. I guess, you know, where do you see kind of the emergent tool set and, and obviously 42 Crunch, the role that you play in, you know, tying in the security? What does kind of the tooling space look like around this? Obviously, security will have the strongest notion. And kind of where do you see it headed? You know, from a security standpoint, I would say there are three main aspects that people are really conscious about automating right now. One is about Docker images and what are my images, where are they coming from, do they have vulnerability inside, like I took this from Docker Hub like nine months ago and never touched again. In the meantime, plenty of CVEs have been, sorry, vulnerabilities have been open against that image and I don't know about it. So people are more and more conscious about, oh, I have to automate the analysis of those images just to make sure that they don't have any known problems, right? That's kind of one layer in the stack. The next one is kind of the same thing, but for open source libraries or external libraries, back maybe to the beginning of that discussion and in history, right? When I started to work 15 years ago, using external libraries was kind of complicated. You would just install something on your machine, you know, and, and, and you would use whatever was there. Now you go NPM install and you have like the world or you're, you know, at your fingertips of dozens and dozens of lines of codes that you've never seen. You have no idea where wrote them. And you're going to take that and you're going to import it straight into your application, right? So do I want to do that, <laughs> right? What is this thing I'm actually importing? What does it do? Does it have problems? It's the same thing, you know, all the tools around software component analysis are also picking up very strongly because they're making sure that those components that you import from all over the world are actually 
safe. And then there's another level, which is where we are, which is, okay, now I'm writing my code and I'm writing my APIs on top of those layers. And I want to make sure that that code is actually okay. I want to make sure that my interface is okay. So in from a 42Crunch perspective, as you would understand, we're starting with open API. That's, that's our starting point for the entire story. So that if you're doing API design first and starting from the contract right there from the beginning, you can enforce that those rules we were talking about, those conventions that I'm going to use auth or an API key or this classification, all of that can be analyzed as early as possible. As soon as I know what that API is going to be, then we'll do automated testing from that as well. So this hacky path testing we'll also do from the open API definition. And then you have all the tools, like we're not looking at the code, we're looking at how the API actually behaves. You have all the tools that will do, you know, the traditional static analysis of the code itself, of the complexity of the code, where that will detect some bad practices in your code, like the typical SAS static analysis and dynamic analysis tools. So all of these from a security standpoint, we see being added to pretty much every pipeline at every customer that, that we work with. There are the main three ones, I would say. Fantastic. Well, Isabel, I think, unless you have any other uh, stuff you thought we missed along the way. I would say, like, as a summary, if we, if, we, if we look at what has to be done, I would say, you know, from a security standpoint and in general, design your APIs in a way that you can take security in account, make sure that whatever rules and approaches you want to take within your enterprise, you can automatically test and make sure you're compliant with and govern your API so you know what you have, you know where they are, you know where they're deployed, you can retire them and you can manage them and then put in place all those automated testing protection in place so that you just ideally click on the button and all of this unrolls magically. And at the end of that pipeline, you have an API which is as secure as possible. Your security team will love you for it. They will make their life much easier and hopefully it will make the all applications and API uh, much safer uh, in the coming years. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll kind of double the reference as the uh, final pointer here to the OWASP API security top 10 and apsecurity.io, both great resources. I think it's, it's a good modern translation from kind of the past of OWASP uh, that we all lived through. So thank you in closing for listeners. If you have kind of questions that came out of this that you felt like, you know, you feel a little confused or needed more, we do bonus episodes where uh, you can send in questions and we'll try to hunt down answers. We can reconnect with Isabel and uh, help get those answered if need be. So if you look in the description on whatever platform you're viewing or listening on, you should have a link there to submit questions. And with that, thanks everyone for listening to API Intersection. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.